0: Turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. we Be looking at verses 13 through 20. Sir Francis Drake was an Englishman who became famous during the reign of Elizabeth I. He was born in 1540 and died in 1596. You probably know him best for his adventures in sailing around the world, conducting even numerous battles at sea. He was also twice a member of parliament and perhaps most famously defeated the Spanish Armada, a fleet of warships when he came to attack England in 1588. One of the funny stories about Sir Francis Drake was that he insisted on finishing a a long game of bowls after the Spanish Armada. They were already approaching and he is quoted to have said, we still have time to finish the bowling game and to thrash the Spaniards too. He proceeded to finish the match which he lost before embarking on the fight with the armada, which he won. Or there's a story of him spreading his cloak over a mud puddle so well, the queen could walk over without getting her feet wet, or how he once tried to claim California as a British possession. While well, he's known for all of these exploits and adventures, what he is not known for is for a little prayer that he wrote It sums up the whole message of Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to these words. O Lord God, when thou givest to thy service to endeavor any great matter, grant us also to know it's not the beginning, but the continuing of the same, until it be thoroughly finished, which yieldeth true glory... Through him who, for the finishing of your work, laid down his life for us, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, Sir Francis Drake, in this unknown prayer, or little-known prayer, says, when it comes to the thing of faith, it's not really the beginning that matters the most, but rather is continuing in the walk of faith and the finishing of the journey which yields the true glory to God. We see that example in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who didn't just begin well, but he finished well by being obedient, even obedient to the death on the cross. Now, I don't know if he was thinking about another sea voyage. I don't know what he was thinking about when he wrote these words, but what he's telling us is it is not the beginning as important as that is, but it's the continuance. They carry on until a thing is thoroughly and completely finished that really, really matters. Now, we all start some things we don't finish, don't we? Could you give me a little list of the things you started that you haven't yet finished? You start out going to paint a beautiful picture, even if it's by numbers and, well, it gets tighter and messier and, How many of you have a piece of cross stitch or needlework that has not been finished? It all starts out well. Or we have a home improvement project and we start it and we do so well for so long and then... Well, I hate to admit it, but in the Batson foyer of our home, the walls are painted about 10 feet tall, but the last two feet, the ladder wasn't tall enough and we'll get to it sometime. Just don't look up if you enter our foyer, please. We all have those things. Maybe it's a project that you have too. When something is really, really big, there are steps in this process that lead us to completion. At first there's that initial burst of enthusiasm. The excitement is something new. We're gung-ho to begin the project. And then there's that gradual seeping away of the energy when it's not so fun to get up and open the paint can anymore. And then, as you continue, there's those days, maybe months, maybe even years on the project when you wake up and realize the novelty is gone and you just have to put one foot in front of the other and continue on with the plan until we at last finally finish and get there. As N.T. Wright has said, living the Christian life is a lot like that project that's hard to finish, it's that way for the readers of the book of Hebrews to whom the author is writing. They began well and they have an impressive track record. Why, there in chapter 6 and verse 10, we learn of the good deeds that they have done, their wonderful track record. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints, they have started well. There's always this very strange balance between God's grace and our works when it comes to following Christ. The Reformation of the 16th century made it clear to us that grace is the only way that we find our place in the kingdom of God. God loves us and Christ died for us. We receive his free grace. But at the same time, Do not the apostles, do not the gospel writers, does not the brother of Jesus, James, does not the apostle Paul all tell us that once we have been a recipient of God's grace, that we're to be busy at the task, working for his kingdom, living as a Christian has never been a matter of settling back and letting God do all the work. Maybe Paul captures that balance best when he writes in Philippians. He tells the Philippians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, and then he adds, because God is at work in you. Even the energy to do all the things that God has called us to do as his people comes from God himself working through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift in itself. Well, when the author of Hebrews is trying to urge the Jewish believers to continue on the path of following Christ and not to go back to Judaism, he chooses Abraham as an example. Look at verse 13 through 16. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation as the end to every dispute. He's trying to urge his readers to find the hope to persevere in the gospel of being obedient to Christ. The readers of Hebrews, those first readers, find themselves at a moment of despair. They're ready to turn it all in and to stop following Christ. They're ready to go back to Judaism. They are hopeless in their hearts about their journey. I don't know what brings sorrow to your heart today. I don't know what gives you a sense of hopelessness this morning your deepest despair. I don't know what it is this morning that troubles your spirit, that keeps you awake at night, that makes you restless on your bed or prize open your eyelids. I don't know where your own brokenness is found today, a broken financial future, a broken sense of security, a broken heart from a failed relationship broken soul brought by the death of one so dear. But just as the author writes to those early Jewish believers, to you too, hear his same words. Why can we, the followers of Christ, why can we be the people of hope in the midst of our hardships? First of all, we find our hope in the greatness of God. We find our hope in the greatness of God. In fact, when describing God in Romans 15, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, for the Apostle Paul, is a God of hope. We find our hope in the greatness of God. God. Abraham was the very father of their faith, even their Jewish faith. He's an example of a man who receives a promise from God, even an oath. And he lived out that promise, persevering during the dark days, continuing on the path of obedience and hope. You remember the story of Abraham. How long did Abraham and Sarah wait for the birth of the child of promise, the one to be the heir to God's nation. Well, Abraham waited decades and decades, and how could he be a blessing to all the nations? And how could his, his descendants be as numerous as the sand on the seashore? If God wouldn't give him that first boy, in fact Abraham is a hundred years old when God finally fulfills God's promise. And then if he hadn't gone through all that waiting for the birth, of his son, Isaac, then in Genesis 2, that sacrifice that he's asked to make on Mount Moriah referred to in Genesis 2. He's caught in this crisis of his love for his son and his love for God. What's he to do? But Abraham believed that the promises of God never fell and he drew back the dagger in obedience to God and God provided the ram in the thicket. We find our hope in the greatness of God. Now, when we swear then and now, we swear by one greater than ourselves. We call upon another authority, a higher authority, to undergird, to buttress our promise or our position. I swear to. You know how we finish that. We finish it with the name of God. And I'm not necessarily advising you do that, but that is how oaths are made. In the Old Testament, it goes this way, as sure as Yahweh lives, and then we finish the oath or the promise, just as sure as the existence of God is the truth of my oath or my promise, we're saying. That was the supreme oath. Abraham swore by God, and Abraham encouraged others to do that. But the writer of Hebrews said that God was looking around for someone by which to swear. He had to swear by someone greater than himself, and God would find no one greater than God, and God just swore by his own name because there is no authority more powerful than God. Back in Genesis 22, we read, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand of the seashore. Sort of a comic picture of God looking around for a great authority to undergird his promise. And God realizes in the comedy, there is no greater power. He is the supreme power. Well, in verse 18, he tells us that God promises to take care of his people. It is an irrevocable. We have two things. He says you have the oath and the promise, and they're absolutely irrevocable. Well, the second thing, we can have our hope, but sometimes it wavers with the weight. We have our hope, but sometimes it wavers with the weight. Like Abraham and Sarah waiting for the birth of that baby boy. There is no more anxious position than waiting. Waiting on the verdict from the court, from the jury. Waiting on the soldier to come home from duty. Waiting on the results of the biopsy. C.H. Spurgeon writes, Waiting is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. Marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. Wait in prayer, however, says Spurgeon. Call upon God and spread the case before him. Tell him of your difficulty and plead your promise, but wait in faith. In Psalm 33, we read, We wait in hope for the Lord. For he is our help, and he is our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. There's a third thing I want you to see in this passage. Our hope is based upon the faithfulness of the forerunner, Our hope is based upon the faithfulness of the forerunner. Look at verses 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Come with me to the ancient catacombs in and around ancient Rome. Look for the symbols there etched in stone, symbols that a Christian, a follower of Christ has been in this secret place. Maybe it's the fish you see even today on a car, a bumper sticker. The ichthus, a symbol, I'm a follower of Christ. Or maybe it's a symbol of a shepherd. But right here on this wall, look closely. They had another symbol that showed one was a follower of the Christ. It was the anchor, an ancient symbol of one who follows Jesus because the anchor shows Despite all the waves of this world, despite all the suffering and storms and uncertainty that befall God's people, we have an anchor that is solid and sure. We have the Christ. That's the image for the author of Hebrews. Christ is our immovable, sure, secure anchor. Now there may be bigger anchors, I went online trying to find the biggest anchor ever that's out there. It's manufactured in 2007 by Vryhoff anchors. The anchors weighed, are you ready, 75 tons apiece. There's eight of them, and each anchor weighed 150,000 pounds. Can you imagine that? In fact, these eight anchors Seventy-five tons apiece traveled through the Panama Canal to become part of the International Missile Defense System. They were to hold the sea-based X-band radar in place. Now, isn't that odd? At that time, the greatest new technology wouldn't work without the oldest technology, a piece of weight, tied to the end. But a bigger anchor looms in Hebrews. It's the Christ. Verse 18, he tells us as we grasp on to hope, all we can do is hold on sometimes, he says. Look at the end of verse 18. Laying hold of the hope set before us, our anchor of hope. Christ entered the presence of God. He went past that veil that separates the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies. He himself is fully in the presence of God. That place where the high priest could only go once a year. Christ dwells there on our behalf. Notice what he's called here. He's called the, the forerunner. Now, the forerunner, verse 20 Is a thing that goes ahead. It's the military scouts. It might be the ships that go ahead of the army. or It might be the earliest ripened fruit. That fruit is a forerunner of the whole harvest to come. It might be used for the swiftest runner that breaks away from the pack and wins the course. Christ is our forerunner. Entering into the presence of God on our behalf. You remember that image in John 14. Jesus tells him, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am there you may also be. And you know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. We do not know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Even Christ's own depiction of himself is one who goes ahead as a forerunner and waits for the rest of us to come. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul calls him the first fruits, and all of those who will also be resurrected are the fruit to follow. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's our advocate, he safeguards the eternity of our souls. The author of Hebrews saying that we are connected by a cable to the Christ who's already in the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and he is anchored there, and he has gone ahead of us to the kingdom of God and the glory of God, and our future is made sure by the fact that Christ looks to God and says, as he sits beside his Father, these are my people. They will be by my Side, You and I cannot live without an anchor of hope. When Alexandra Levine was in medical school in Los Angeles, she was on the general medicine ward. She had a 55-year-old woman who was admitted to her care. She had a lesion on her right upper lung. Other than that, her health basically looked good and she was without symptoms. She spent the week going through all the diagnostic studies. During that time, Alexandra Dr. Levine grew to know the patient. She was like family. She was a dynamo. She was vigorous. She became a kind of extra pair of hands on the ward, delivering out the food trays because she didn't feel bad. She was running minor errands for the nurses. The whole staff came to love this patient. Well, all the battery of tests came back about the mass on the lung is inconclusive. So they're going to have to do exploratory surgery to see what was actually in there. And the surgery, unfortunately, showed that the cancer had gone too far. It was not resectable. The biopsy was taken. The incision was simply closed, and the patient was left as she was. Dr. Levine says, I remember the next morning, I would become close to this patient. She's a medical student, Dr. Levine. She says, I just, I just didn't go in there. I just avoided it. I didn't go in there to talk to her. I mean, how was I going to tell her the news? She didn't want to confront the patient she had grown to love. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know what words to use. So she just chose to wait and she entered with the resident and the interns making the rounds to see the patient. And the resident stood beside her bed, looking down at the patient, not looking at her, looking down at the patient. And the resident said, "It's cancer. We couldn't resect it. We simply opened and we closed." "It's cancer. We couldn't resect it. We simply opened and we closed." "Open and closed?" The patient asked. "Open and closed?" You just closed? Yes, said the resident. It couldn't be removed, so we just closed. The patient just kept repeating those words to the resident and he kept nodding his head. Yep, that's right, that's what we did. We just opened and closed. You mean you left the cancer inside of me? Yes, yes, that's what we did. We opened and closed, the resident repeated for the 10th time. The patient closed her eyes, said she was tired, and asked them to leave. When the medical student, Dr. Alexandra Levine, went back to see the patient, there was a little bit of small talk, but she said the patient was never the same after that. She remembers that as a medical student, she was too young and inexperienced and did not know what to do or what to say. And so she came in the next morning to try to build the bridge back to the patient, but she learned that the patient died during the night. She was taken for an autopsy, but there was no specific cause of death. I've never been able to get those words out of my mind, said Dr. Levine. You opened and closed? You just sewed me back up? I mean, she had a scar, she had the procedure, she had the pain, and she had nothing to show for it. I don't know why she died, said the medical student. But if I'm honest with you, I think she died because they took away all of her hope. I believe the key to this case was the resident said to her that her cancer could not be treated surgically and so he simply opened and closed. In fact, the resident did not mention any other possible treatment and his words took away her hope. I believe, said Dr. Levine, when he took away her hope, he took away her potential for any more life. Should he have lied to the patient, writes Dr. Levine? No, I don't think so, but we can be sensitive. I do believe he didn't have to take away all of her hope. The people of God have a sure anchor of hope. Christ has died, and Christ has emerged victorious. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He holds the cable, and he waits in the glory of God. He's our anchor, crucified and resurrected. Like Abraham... Like the early believers receiving the letter of Hebrews, we too are called to wait, to depend upon the greatness of God, but most of all, to lay hold of the hope set before us, the hope founded in a crucified and resurrected Christ who has become our unmovable, unshakable anchor. The anchor holds. Let us pray. Oh God, there's a lot of suffering in this room, a lot of folks in storm, but they know that their God is the God of Abraham, a God who keeps his promise and makes an oath by his own greatness, for there's no one greater. But most of all, we have that forerunner who's gone ahead of us. See the right hand of God, our anchor, and we are cabled to his destiny. And so, God, this morning, for those who are tired and weary, who've lost their energy and their vision, those who are ready to give up and quit, like the Hebrew believers, may they hear these words of hope, an anchor, For our soul, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.